You're listening to Policy Room by SPRF. Approximately a month back, the Ministry of Home Affairs issued a press release titled Rohingya Illegal Foreigners. The central government's statement asked the Delhi government to detain and deport the refugees, suggesting they were a security threat. The Delhi government itself had blamed the refugees for spreading violence only a few months earlier. Last month's exchange marks yet another instance of a South Asian state looking at refugees from a security perspective and not so much a rights one. In today's podcast, we look at South Asia's collective post-colonial history, how that has made refugees quote-unquote dangerous in the collective imagination, and the role of communalism in that narrative. We will end by briefly touching on the upcoming problem of climate change and look at the possible policy recommendations for the same. To help us do all of that today is Udayan. Hi to everyone. And I'm your host, Ria. Udayan is presently an assistant professor at the Department of Political Science, St. Xavier's College, Kolkata, and is also pursuing his PhD in international relations. Today, we are using Udayan's chapter in the book, Internal Migration with South Asia, Contemporary Issues and Challenges, as our North Star in the discussion. If you'd like to follow along, Links for the chapter and SPRF's body of work on refugees will be linked in the show notes. And with all of that housekeeping done, I can welcome you then. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I actually went through your chapter in great detail um, and I found a lot of points very theory heavy, but also really interesting and really, really applicable to what's going on today. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, a lot of like new developments have happened around refugees, especially in August itself. And um, a lot of the discussions um, that I'm that I'm talking about right now in my head, I think would be incomplete, especially in context of South Asia, um, without addressing the foremost thing that you bring up in your chapter, which is that we do not legally recognize anyone as a refugee. Um, India in particular makes everyone a foreigner under the Foreigners Act and many from the civil society and academia suggest that for a better refugee policy in general, uh, for the sake of having labels, states must clearly distinguish between tourists, refugees and immigrants as many, many other states uh, internationally do. Um, But in your work, you suggest that it's not so much these labels that we need to enforce Um, but that we have to collectively rethink our shared histories and connected roots to resolve this issue. So do you want to maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, So uh, the first thing is that having taken nothing away from the enumerative practices of listing, recognizing, establishing these categories, which even though to some extent can be flawed, are a great deal valuable in terms of looking at the rights of refugees and they certainly add to the rights and values of the refugees and the life of them. But where we go into this chapter primarily is that looking at just the labeling or looking at just the rights of the refugees is just like treating the symptoms and not the cause. Okay, so you're treating one part of the story but you're leaving a huge part of it open which is that how does refugee as a category evolve in South Asia or where is it that these refugees are coming from? Uh, South Asia creates refugees uh, because of the constitutive practices of South Asia itself. Okay, so 
how South Asia is as a region is to a large extent one of the factors as to how refugees evolve, what is the reason behind the making of refugees in South Asia. So if you are using enumerative practices of listing refugees, immigrants, foreigners, those are all very important in terms of looking at the rights of refugees. But we are also not addressing one of the issues that how do refugees come in the first place? What is the reason because of the fact that South Asia continues to produce refugees without even naming and calling them refugees? So what is it that is going on behind uh, these refugees in the first place? Uh, we talk about refugees in terms of persecution. So where is this persecution starting from? In a lot of cases, what happens is the unbecoming of political membership is synonymous to refugee making in South Asia. So how do political membership is, uh, how does it become incomplete is the starting point in which the making of refugees really begun from. So as a result of which, we need to look into the making of South Asia and we need to un understand the fact that territorial nationalism and the sovereignty of states is so, I mean, cast iron in this, in this logic of South Asia as a region is to a large extent responsible for the unbecoming of many people's political membership, which has resulted in them coming across as refugees. So we need to hit the nail on the head if we are trying to address the problem of refugees in South Asia. It's not just the enumerated practices that are going to take care of it. We have to go behind that and we have to go beneath that. We have to take a broader look at how political membership is one of the key factors. Okay, so, I mean, any person is a product of plural identities. But in South Asia, the national identity looms large heavily. Uh, we became states by accident, but national identities are to a large extent definitive of what we are and whom we are. These states, uh, which, I mean, if you look at South Asia and the colonial period, the pre-colonial period, this is a meta-state kind of a region. So there are several identities coming together, several identities, not necessarily one identity, but the fact that these identities are interactive and communicative in nature, it develops a certain kind of hold in this, in this region. Cut to 1947, if you just imagine it like a, like a tracing paper, like a pile of tracing paper on top of the another. So if you imagine South Asia as just lines of kinship, language, culture, community. Okay, so that's one part, that's one, let's say, graphing that you do. If you put the cast iron territorial borders on the top of that tracing paper, you see several lines being cut across, several lines being absolutely ruptured. And then when these states came into being, they were left with a motley of identities. Some identities prioritized, some identities not so prioritized. The political elite coming into place, uh, territorial citizenship coming into play, uh, who belongs here and who doesn't belong here comes to play who deserves to be here and who doesn't deserve to be here. So as a result of which, all of these factors come into the making of the mold of South Asia that we see now, which is that very much dependent on not the meta-state identity that we talked about in the colonial period or in the pre-colonial period, but pretty much hard-shell sovereign states who are deciding on their national identity, prioritizing some communities, and not owning up certain communities. So as a result of which, this not owning up of certain communities, how is this that internecine conflicts evolve? How is it that developmental projects uh, really push away people from one part of the, of the state to the other part of the state? 
how is it that communalism or the making of national identity is something that is deciding on the future of the people some people finding them accommodated in the national identity some are being outcasts from the national identity and that is where the germane cause of uh, violence or let's say persecution is something that starts in south asia so we found that if we look at the labeling part if we look at the legal aspect that's one part of the story we are going to treat the problem at hand but we are going to treat it like symptoms we are not going to treat it like cause the cause remains so any legal let's say formula if you put it in terms of legality that's one part of the story but it also has to have some social legitimacy it also needs to have some political acceptability i feel and we feel in the paper that this political acceptability or legitimacy is something that is lacking in terms of these compacts or institutional uh, practices that are there for refugees around the world so pretty much so we need to go back to the history we need to look at what is it that is related with the history of south asia the politics of south asia that gives rise to refugees in the first place i think it's a really interesting point that you bring up about the unbecoming of a lot of citizens um because like you mentioned a lot of states um in south asia today are states by accident not so much by choice especially if you look at how uh you know colonizers went about uh dividing state borders and so on and so forth um but the concept of ethnic membership was there pre even during pre colonial times during colonial times and especially now post colonial times since a lot of the people who buy into the idea of ethnic membership are in power right and um, this is also something that you mentioned in the paper which is that increasingly um the norms of citizenship um inclusion exclusion minority majority are taking are buying into the idea of an ethnic membership into a country um which is producing a lot of the problem around refugees because suddenly people who were citizens are suddenly not citizens from of a country um as we see in the case of let's say Myanmar um hopefully not india in any time soon but uh, can be um hopefully yeah and uh, so that 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 concept keeps cropping up um across south asia as a whole um so i i like i said in the at the outset of the podcast any discussion is incomplete when we don't consider the the predominant role of communalism um i understand that ethnicity is a lot broader than that but i from my experience and my reading i am only seeing that one tangent being highlighted time and again in spe- in especially ethnic membership so can you trace this out a little bit for us in terms of religion um um and how that plays into making refugees in south asia yeah certainly one of the most important factors is religion because of the fact that the very this, this juncture from which decolonization starts and the making of modern south asia evolves is premised on religion so whether we like it or not whether we agree upon it or not religion is one of the major factors in terms of the making of south asia the mold of south asia that we see and when these states emerged one of the first things that they wanted to do among many other things was the fact that they wanted to build a nation building project on a certain castified identity so this national identity in more cases than one uh, in south asia seems to be of a very ethnic category okay so in in you see various examples in the rise in pakistan the rise of islamic identity if you see a uh, singhalese uh, the ethnicity in terms of sri lanka 
uh, if you see Bangladesh, there's the same problem with regard to language and also ethnicity to a large extent. India, to a large extent, has also been debated about whether we are moving towards a more ethnic or more religious connotation of how our nation is imagined and how we uh, sort of imagine ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the nation. So what does this do is basically that it creates a certain proprietorship of a community with regard to a nation and leads several people out. And especially if those communities are being seen across borders. Okay, so, for example, the Indians, are, uh, for example, the Tamils in India and in Sri Lanka. So, whenever we are seeing it from a Sri Lankan perspective, they are seen to be as outsiders. So, uh, it's it's a critical case of the fact that maybe three generations or four generations have lived in Sri Lanka. They have never known a land beyond Sri Lanka, but to the Sinhalese, they are ethnically Indians. So as a result of which, they are not to be seen on this side of the border. They seem to be on the other side of the border, which, which also results in various policy outcomes. So for example, the Citizenship Act, the Languages Act, the nature of electoral independence that they have. All of these start stumbling one after the other. Similarly, if you see Pakistan, the rise of Islamization as a strategy during Ziya's rule and later on, categorically uh, sort of sidelines people who, who do not fit in the mold of the national identity of Pakistan. And that, that gives rise to human migration to a large extent because the population flows depends on the kind of outcasting that is being done, whether it's within the fold of the Islamic identity, Ahmadiyya's, Shias, or whether it's outside uh, the Islamic identity, the Christians, the Hindus, and so on and so forth. If you come to Bangladesh, uh, the Chakmas and the Hajongs, uh, the, the Bihari Muslims, all of these communities, the point is that the nation states derive a certain kind of ethnic identity to, or in some cases, like you pointed out, re religious identity to their nation building, to their nation making. And as a result of which, such claims by the elite automatically sidelined a lot of communities who were seen not fitting into the mold or who were seen fitting into the mold of the enemy or the neighbor. So as a result of which the persecution was in a sense an automatic corroboration of this. As and when you found uh, that there is a national identity that is evolving and there are some people who are being shed out of that. So these people are automatically becoming targets of uh, persecution, of uh, let's say different types of outcasting, whether it's electoral, whether it's political, whether it's social, different types of whether it's economical sometimes, several kinds of persecution being followed up with them. And as a result of which, it, it seems like South Asia is heading towards, broadly speaking, a region where ethnic membership, or if I may extend, ethnic democracy as something which is taking root in, in the region. So as a result of which, the liberals did not have a very uh, sustained support in South Asia anyway. Okay, despite the fact that we have economically liberalized, we have culturally liberalized to a large extent, but liberal politics or individualism as a category did not evolve in South Asia to a large extent. So South Asia, the, the point that we make in terms of the theory, which is, I understand, a, a lot heavier than the, than the discussions usually on refugee, is that we are trying to portray the argument that South Asia is a communitarian space. And in a communitarian space, there are practices of gatekeeping. Okay, so there are obvious practices of gatekeeping because you are saying that the cultural borders and the territorial borders need to sink. So whoever is not in your cultural border also needs to be out of your territory. So, for example, the persecution of, I mean, the, the nature of persecution of Hindus in Pakistan or Muslims in India 
to a large extent is dependent on this fact that they are imagined outside the cultural identification of the state in some ways. Okay, so the cultural and the political borders need to be in sync. If they're not in sync, there is a kind of a mismatch. And this is something that has been portrayed by a lot of elite members of, of the political elite of South Asia. Okay, so whether it's uh, India, Pakistan, Nepal, even if you, if you look at all of these examples, they point towards the same fact that gradually we are seeing a more ethnicized idea or a more cultural idea of a nation, which is not very inclusive in character, which is very homogeneous in character. So whoever does not fit that homogeneity needs to be out. Interestingly, what happens in South Asia is that even democratization is molded into this logic. Okay, so it's not that democracy has changed uh, the perspective of South Asian politics in that sense. So even democracy, as and when democracy has become stronger in South Asia, even democracy has a numerical impulse. Okay, so we are not looking in between elections. We are looking at elections in South Asia. We are not looking at the quality of life in between elections or the nature of individual choice, which is at the fulcrum of democracy. We are looking at democracy also as a 51-49 game. So as a result of which, this cultural membership or an ethnic membership idea is also something that has kind of, it has been also corroborated with the logic of democracy in South Asia, which is very numerical democracy, which is very different from a substantive democracy, which is an electoral democracy. So we see what we see that the rise of civil war in Sri Lanka is very interestingly simultaneous with the rise of democracy and liberalism in Sri Lanka. Okay, so the conventional wisdom will say that as and when liberalism unfolds or as and when democracy unfolds in a country, there are better reasons for uh, more inclusive politics or better reasons for more, let's say, uh, heterogeneous societies. But we see the reverse of that. We see as and when democracy forms and as and when liberalization goes ahead, in fact, the logic of homogeneity, logic of electoral democracy, numerical democracy is also something that is pushed ahead. So South Asian states, uh, they are molded in a certain manner and they're heading towards a certain stage where the ethnicity or let's say a certain identity is something that is seen with synonymous with the state. And whenever you don't fit with that identity, there are implications for that, whether legal implications, social political implications. And that is something that is the root cause of the migration of the people. So they automatically think that if I migrate to the next country, I am amongst my brethren. So I am in a better space. So Tamils migrated from Sri Lanka to India and they felt that, okay, now we are amongst our brethren. And so now we are in a better space. The Bengalis from uh, Bangladesh in 1971, they migrated to this part of Bengal and they thought that, okay, now we are in a better space because we are amongst our veterans. So one of the reasons I feel is that we are heading and why we are, why are, why am I saying that we are heading? I think to a large extent, our South Asian fold of South Asian nationalities is premised on ethnic membership to a large extent, de facto or de jure, whatever we might think. Is there, do you see any trends particular in more contemporary times, um, and I'm referring to maybe the last 30, 40 years, that you see um, are aggravating this trend of otherization of certain uh, parts of the society? Yeah, I mean, if you if you go by uh, the, I mean, any democratic project as and when it evolved in South Asia, evolved on the premise of otherization. Okay, so we are, Indian identities, what? Pakistan identity is not. 
Pakistan identity is what Indian identity is not. Sri Lankan identity, Bangladesh is an identity which it is neither India neither Pakistan. So to to a large extent, the fold of nation nation and national identity in South Asia is dependent on otherization. Who is an external and who is an internal? Who belongs here and who doesn't belong here? So there are two things here. First is that. Uh, the nature of populist leadership that is evolving uh, amongst the political elite of South Asia. That's one of the factors uh, whereby uh, the symbolism, the rhetorics of ethnic membership, who belongs here, who doesn't, who is an insider, who is an outsider is taking root. The second is also the fact that if you, if you closely see uh, South Asian politics, then you will also find that uh, this otherization is also a mobilizing force politically. Okay, so it, it also helps the logic of democracy. Okay, so why would you disband democracy if you can mobilize on the name of otherization and you can reap benefits out of that? So why is it that there is a need uh, for, for uh, anyway disbanding democracy and uh, top-down politics when you can really secure votes by otherizing and you can really secure votes by mobilizing and taking otherization as a factor? In fact, interestingly, South Asia, I mean, more than saying it along the religious or an ethnic lines, it's better if we can argue on a scale which is much more agnostic, which is inside or outside. Okay, that also helps explain South Asia. A lot of other examples that we don't consider when we are talking about refugees in South Asia. Okay, so for example, if you see the whole Northeast predicament, if you see the nature of Chakmas and Hajongs, the refugees in the Northeast, uh, it's much more explainable on the terms of who is an insider and who is an outsider, who belongs here and who doesn't belong. Uh, who's supposed to be here and who's not supposed to be here, who's supposed to be on the other side of the world. So, of course, as and when uh, the logic politically it is becoming a more contested space, the playbook now is of otherization. Okay, so once the narrative has been shifted towards otherization, we see that the political parties who probably in the early years of South Asia were not so much focused on otherization, they are also taking the play. They are also going by that playbook because of the fact that they also need to survive in the political culture. They also need to survive in the political game. And uh, as a result of which, this otherization is something that is twined with the logic of democracy. It's helping them in terms of political mobilization. It's helped uh, them in terms of vote. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I think that as and when uh, democracy as a project in South Asia is, is gaining ground, as and when democracy, of course, a certain version of democracy that we spoke about. As and when that's happening, there is increasing logic of otherization and it's becoming more contested. So the political elite is trying to invent uh, certain ideas of the state, invent certain pasts, uh, which do not go back to the historical past that we have lived, but a past that basically sanctifies certain communities, sanctifies their version of what a nation, national identity should be. And it is derived from that idea of who belongs and who doesn't. So whether it's Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, the political elites are trying to derive a past to justify their present. A past that is not necessarily the past of South Asia or the past of this region, but is a past that is conveniently curated and derived out of their political benefits. So certainly we see a rise of otherization in the, in the last 20, 30 years. But I would say that uh, the seeds of otherization or uh, the ingredients of otherization were always there in South Asian nation building, in the projects of South Asian nationalism. Okay, so when we talk about otherization or just the in-group, out-group 
dynamic that crops up quite often. Um, the in-group does need to have an out-group for the in-group to be cohesive. You need to have a otherized, you know, demonized other for you to feel like the community that you're in is more cohesive, more um, whatever spin you want to put on it is more something more than the other outgroup member, um, which also, um, so we're, we're increasingly seeing um, in South Asia, particularly where the the outgroup people are uh, portrayed to be more demonic, more violent, more um just volatile to have in a country that is the narrative that is built that we cannot have these abc people in the country because they will um you know blank insert doomsday and they will bring forth the doomsday for the rest of us which also bleeds into um something that you mentioned following up to the podcast in the email where you said that um refugees are viewed as causes of conflict um rather than results of conflict right um and this I find really interesting because they are often, um, you know, it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy wherein um, you you create circumstances for certain ethnic groups or certain groups in general where you portray to them to be quite dangerous for a state, uh, dangerous for statehood. And um, in that, you oust them from the state and they have no clue or sorry, they have no other option than to flee or to fight back. So can you maybe expand a little bit more on the results of conflict um, and not yeah, so much sure. the causes of conflict? Yeah. So you, you kind of hit the nail on the head that uh, whenever otherization as a project unfolds, it is more about meaning than anything else. So it's, it's more about meaning than actually evidence or empirical facts that we see on ground. Because of the fact that sometimes uh, the evidence or uh, these empirical facts do not build a very good narrative. So you need to inject some sort of a meaning into these categories. Otherwise, these categories are, are sort of incomplete. So from the very beginning, if you see the discourse in South Asia, refugees have been symbolized by various representations, various images. Okay, so whether it's the carrier of diseases, uh, the, uh, the unknown, the people who are demonic or the people who are, who are let, let's say, much more violent, all of these representations also build the narrative in terms of appealing to people, in terms of getting the story across to people, that uh, it's not only that they are outsiders, but they are of a certain kind of outsider. So that really helps in building the narrative. So uh, we take up the case of two uh, communities in, in this paper where that we talk about. And uh, we look at uh, the Afghan refugees in Pakistan, and we look at the Bangladeshi refugees in India. And in both of the cases, we find that while in the beginning, they were pretty much welcoming the Pakistani state and the people and the Indian state and the people were pretty much welcoming of these refugees, seeing them as brethren, seeing them as brothers from the other side of the border. As and when uh, the, the nature, the timeline progressed, we see the fact that the logic changes and the approach also changes. So they were seen as refugees in the beginning. They were starting to be seen as infiltrators later. Okay, so there is also a gradual hardening of the stance as and when this happens. What happens in South Asia to a large extent is refugees are not seen from the eyes of human rights and they are rather seen from the eyes of security. So whenever the violation of borders happens, so borders are very important for nation states because that's where their lives reside. So once the social 
uh, let's say enroachment of borders happen once the borders are breached by a certain community the logic is swiftly transcended into the security discourse okay, so they, they are being seen as security threats not any other kind of threat but security threat as an ex as an outsider we borrow the theoretical model from the copenhagen school uh, which which talks about the securitization framework that when is it that a certain issue becomes a security issue okay so this is uh, this is what the framework is premised upon uh, we see that the afghan refugees in pakistan and the bangladeshi refugees in india they both have been converted very swiftly into matters of security rather than matters of rights and whenever uh, the uh, the let's say the political mobilization had to be taken on uh, various imageries were invoked for example the kalashnikov culture and the whole idea that the afghan refugees are very violent and they are basically militarizing the pakistani society uh, the same for the bangladeshi refugees i mean you know that uh, the infiltration issue is a huge issue in west bengal politics it's it's pretty much one of the issues on which the uh, the present incumbent government of the tnc and the bjp they fight regularly on the back the bjp thinks that they are appeasing uh, the muslim infiltrators and the tnc feels that there there's no infiltration that's happening and and this infiltration is is absolutely cooked up story of the bjp so what the upshot of the matter is that the nature of south asian refugees and our the nature of liberal politics is so weak in south asia that we do not see refugees as the people who are basically the they they are a result of the implications of the conflict and rather we see them as they are bringing the conflict they are bearing the conflict they are bearers of the conflict they are coming in and they are basically infiltrating the conflict here okay so they are seen as threats because they are bringing their conflict to our home to our doorstep and as a result of which this imagery whether it's evidenced or not has been invoked in a lot of times to to a some to a large extent to mobilize and to let's say formalize your voting bank or or let's say uh, the nature of your politics uh, so that like you said that in order to be united you need a common foe you need a common enemy so often these imageries help in sustaining and bringing people together and it also helps your agendas of politics so whether it's evidence or not whether it's something which is empirical or not refugees are often seen as threats and this threat perception is something that happens in south asia very regularly because they are often seen as bearers of conflict rather than the effects of conflict as i as i put it in the paper uh, so that is something that uh, is is dependent upon the various kind of imageries representations that are evoked in refugees refugees have been to a large extent if you look at the popular culture of south asia have been a pejorative term a pejorative and a vulnerable term with regard to that and that is also laden with other elements of violence other elements of let's say uh, if you look at afghan refugees drug trafficking violence the kalashnikov culture all of this twined into one Uh, and because of the fact that representation is really something which is or let's say imagery or symbolism is something that is really attractive to the human mind it really works in many ways it, it's really been uh, helpful for the political elite to further their advantages and their goals i want to tap into the point of uh, collective imagination and how that serves uh, the perception of refugees particularly in india so and i will do a little bit of push back to everything that we've said so far in terms of refugees as a as a whole just being um, demonized in india 
while that is true i can't help but notice certain class of refugees are treated differently um and my understanding of it is because um for example how we perceive tibetan refugees in delhi or in india is largely different to how we perceive rohingya refugees or bangladeshi refugees and that is because india has a certain kind of relationship with tibet uh, wherein we view ourselves as the saviors of tibet and you know the the ultimate out group or the bad guy is china right so there in in taking tibetan refugees in we are sort of the heroes of the story and so that i in my research have not been able to find a lot of um violence against tibetan refugees for the sake of being refugees uh versus let's say rohingya refugees and uh, bangladesh refugees the the relationship obviously there that india has with both of the states changes quite drastically and there's the collective imagination also how it perceives both states changes quite a lot um so i believe that in india there's certain classes of refugees that you have um let's say there's you know tibetans who are treated quite well their culture is welcomed you know their culture is to some degree gentrified and fetishized a little bit um but you know how just an example that i would like to say is that how however easy it is for a tibetan refugee to introduce their food um and you know you know advertise you know tibetan laughing here in whatever majnu katela uh, versus a rohingya refugee wanting to open up a shop for rohingya food um only one of them is going to receive a lot more backlash than the other um and that while both of them are refugees so do you think that collective imagination or the perception even of who the bad guy is whether be it a state that we're protecting refugees from or the bad guys being refugees themselves how does how do we go about challenging these collective imaginations because of the fact that uh, we do not have any institutional backing okay so we do not follow the institutional compacts and and things like that so the entire thing is dependent upon the domestic ways of setting the equilibrium is how we set the equilibrium domestically while india i mean if you look at the record india i mean if you ask anybody from the state or an official from from the state they will say that signing up the refugee convention or not signing up isn't something that is going to stop us in terms of welcoming refugees and india has welcomed refugees in the past and things like that but any kind of institutional pattern not being the case is what sets an absolute free hand of the domestic okay so who is a refugee and who is not who is a good refugee and who is not depends upon two layers one of the factors is that what is the political class determining okay how is it that the political class is really setting the tone and setting the agenda at the let's say institutional level at the domestic level of politics uh, so uh, how are the projects of refugee saving the refugees or giving them refugee status is being portrayed by the political elite uh, how is it that working that equilibrium is something which is not a very balanced equilibrium because that is set upon the macro micro factors of the regime then okay so if there is a regime uh, what are the macro micro factors that are being decided upon uh, in terms of going for a refugee a population of refugees whether being they are given given the refugee status or they are denied that or let's say they, even if they are given they are not being given the social and political legitimacy that the others are given so one kind of an agenda setting or symbolism is something that is done by the by the state which is dependent upon a very arbitrary let's say mechanism of the regiment or let's say the establishment during that period of time 
Okay, so several macro and micro factors come together in terms of making up of the refugees. The second is that in India, if you look at uh, the practice of how refugees are accepted, is not just a political game, but it's also a large, to a large degree, a social and uh, cultural factor as well. So, for example, even in the case of several refugees in India, even if the government is pushing for their citizenship, the local politics is something that is deterring uh, the citizenship. Okay? So, a very good point is the case of the Arunachal Pradesh and the Chakmas and Hajongs. So, the, uh, the Human Rights Commission or the Supreme Court has been advocating of the citizenship of the Chakmas and Hajongs who came because of the displacement from the Karnapuli River in Bangladesh, uh, the Chittagong Hill Tracks. But if you see the local politics, and the Chakmas and Hajongs are seen as outsiders, and there is this perpetual, uh, let's say, fear of the outsiders really diluting the local culture in Arunachal Pradesh, which is contributing to a lot of issues in terms of giving these people the citizenship. So one level of the game is decided by the political class, the political elite, where the agenda setting is being done. That agenda setting is very arbitrary because we do not sign up for the institutional patterns of the international compacts or international conventions. So as a result, that is completely a free hand of the domestic game. The political class sort of, uh, let's say, it sets the stage according to the kind of benefits that it can reap, the kind of macro-micro factors that it has to face. The other is that despite of the institutional and the legal, uh, let's say, push from the above, there is also a component of the fact that how these refugees are accepted socially and culturally. Okay? So that also depends upon a lot of popular imagination that exists. Okay, So how is it that we see? Do we see them as economic threats? Do we see them as cultural threats? Do we see them as outsiders who were supposed to go back to their states but are not going? Uh, who are supposed to be a threat to us in terms of our ethnicity? Uh, for example, there are many concerns about how the demography is changing within a constituency because of refugees, how the culture is changing because of the coming of refugees. So that, again, any society has a certain practice of gatekeeping. While no identity is purely homogeneous, okay, so if we go back tracing behind, we will find that all of the identity, we can't trace them back to an absolute purity. So all of them have evolved with time and all of them have evolved with interactions. But even the fact that this homogeneous or this purity of an identity is difficult to define, if you ask any community, they are to a large extent also dependent on this vague idea of what is theirs and what is not theirs. So whenever they see a threat coming from the outside, which is not theirs and which is diluting what is theirs, is something that raises the alarms within, within the community. And as a result of this, it also sends a delegitimizing message to the top. Now, whether the state will accept or not also depends on the overlap of the advantages that both the state and the society really shares. So a popular imagination of the Rohingya Muslims and the present-day establishment or the state's way of looking at Rohingya Muslims, that overlaps in a lot of ways. So as a result of which, it's a, it's a kind of a double blow on, on, on some refugees. Whereas in some sense, there is a double acceptance on some refugees as well, who are culturally and politically being seen as synonymous with what we share and what we have. Uh, thanks so much. I think that really clarifies a couple of doubts that I had. But, um, you know, up until now, we've just been discussing how identities play into creation of refugees, uh, creation or unbecoming of citizens in certain countries. But uh, increasingly, you know, it's not going to be dependent so much on identities as it is going to be on climate change. 
right? And climate change refugees um, are an increasing possibility, especially if we look at the case of Pakistan, where I think um, when I wrote the script, for example, there were 50 million people who had been displaced by floods. Um, and so in that sense, they the the migration across the subcontinent is just impending and it's likely to happen. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is, how do you see the subcontinent dealing with the impending climate migration in the coming years, given that we don't have a framework at all um, and we base so much of uh, accepting and rejecting of people across borders based solely on our um, feelings for them, essentially? Now that's that's a question that invites a lot of discussion. I think there can be a podcast on the question itself. But uh, the thing is that uh, if I had to point out a few things, the first thing is that uh, the category of climate refugees or climate migration is something which is difficult to deal with. So in most of the cases, uh, it's like an invisible hand working on the migration. It's like an invisible hand working on uh, the movement of people or the flow of people, which people themselves to a large extent will not be able to understand in one okay, So for example, and this is something that I have always thought that how do we delineate this factor as climate's causal factor on the movement of the people. Okay, So for example, in the Sundarbans, there's gradual salinity of the water, which leads to the failure of crops. So uh, the failure of crops as a result of this leads someone to move into the cities for looking for a day job. Now, if you ask this person that why have you moved uh, to the city for a day job or why is it that the migration has taken place, uh, the person would probably say the failure of crops and that comes across as an economic reason. Okay, so when there is an enumerative practice that is also done and if you create a sample size and you ask them that what is it that brings you here or what is it that makes you go from one place to another place, they would possibly point out reasons which are not climate, which are not climate in, in terms of climatic, in terms of nature. They would rather look at much more established categories of economic or political persecution. As a result of which, climate works as a force multiplier in several cases. So it works as something which has accelerated and which is working at the background of all these push and pull factors, which are economic, political, social, cultural characters. So a, a river changes its course, destroys several houses. Most people will move because they think that they do not have any more economic alternatives of livelihood present there. So as a result of which, it comes across as an absolute economic push and pull factor because of which they have migrated to a different part of, of the country or a different part of a different country. So as a result of which, the first, and because of this, you will also not find that the government's really considering climate as a category which can induce population flows, which can create persecution, which can create, uh, let's say, the category of refugees. So there's nothing called climate migration or climate refugees that is there in the official discourses of the states in South Asia as a result of which. So the problem of identification that how do we become conscious of the fact that there is something which is not visible or let's say the most visible, if I may put it the other way, uh, which is in, which is the most obvious, but we choose not to see that, is something that is an operative factor behind the movement of the people, behind the refugees. Uh, that's problem number one. Problem number two is that for that, the governments have to sort of look into it as a, as a category. So, which, which which they are not ready to do because it doesn't serve any purpose of them. So, even if it's climate migration, you will often come across the word that the terror of climate or or the the analogy of the climate with the war. So, 
so as a result of which the way we are typecasting climate change or the migration that is because of climate change is also according to the established categories of security and established categories of economic migration that we have so as a result of which climate migration i mean these two problems are firstly domestic issues so how is it that uh, we make climate a category which is an explainable category for migration that's the domestic problem the other problem i find is that how do we treat climate at a regional level okay so because of the fact i mean there is no doubt about the fact and there are several people who working on the field of critical geopolitics that have identified sanjay chaturvedi being the topmost name here Uh, who have identified that climate has its own logic of territorializing territories okay so no matter how we territorialize how we create borders climate borders and climate territories are working on their own logic and there as a result of which they are producing transboundary effects but there isn't any solution of looking at climate from a regional perspective okay so for example the whole tragedy of commons argument that you bring Uh, that uh, i mean the problem of collective action that uh, if you, if everybody is looking for their rational interests and pretty much in south asia every state is looking for their national interests they would rather not go ahead anything in terms of collective interests okay so they are fine not doing anything collectively because they are okay with whatever they are whatever it is happening in terms of their own national interests so looking at uh, i mean there there are several problems as to how these states will deal with climate at a regional level at a collective level uh, because of the fact of this we haven't had any kind of a framework despite the fact that south asia is a very precarious region when it comes to climate i mean bangladesh uh, myanmar india the very long coastline that we see the cities uh, are already experiencing its effects to a large extent and it would lead to migration it inevitably it would lead to migration it leads to migration every every day perhaps as we are talking whether it's the sundarbans whether it's whether it's chittagong whether it's different parts of pakistan it has led to migration and sooner or later this migration will also cross the boundaries of the of the countries but how do we deal with it if we do not have a regional framework and how do we have a regional framework at the end of the day Okay, we are we are so obsessed with national interest, we are obsessed with national self-interest that it's very hard to bring about a collective action in South Asia. So, as a result of which, one, the absence of climate as a category; second, the absence of a response in terms of a regional level. They both lead to the fact that we'll fall back on existing criteria of identifying refugees. So, we'll look at a Bangladeshi refugee if, if the person has crossed the border because of environmental reasons. one the person himself or herself will not be able to determine the fact that the climate is one of the factors that is pushing the person here second the state will not recognize it and third is that even if the state recognizes what do the collective action of the states will be able to perform in this case is something that is also doubtful so despite the fact that this is one of the most obvious and the most blatant uh, aspects of south asia in fact i see the fact that If there's anything that brings South Asia together, it's the environment. Okay, politically, culturally, economically, we are absolutely looking into ourselves only. If there's anything that has the potential to bring together South Asia as a space, it's possibly environment. But then again, how do we collaborate? How do we cooperate as a, as a collective regional entity? Uh, that answer I do not have. I think it's okay if you don't individually have that answer. Um... but i want to uh, take that string of thought and tie it into let's say um the the critical policy policy juncture that we arrive at 
um, not just from a climate perspective, but just from uh, the perspective of um, better homing refugees. Because in your chapter, you while you're addressing the problem of ethnic, ethnic membership and um, possibly heading into the space of a lot of refugees and a lot of individuals being excluded from the state, you mentioned quite clearly that it's just impossible to to exclude a group or a community that has stayed in a region um and it's in, it's impossible to quote unquote raid a place of um individuals who belong there um and that you know migration or refugees are always going to be a thing and they have historically always been a thing um so from that standpoint how do we let's say as a state um or as even a subcontinent for that matter um how do we adopt or what policies or what you know in your opinion um you know how do you see south asia as a whole um functioning better and because of what policies can we regulate let's say um or home refugees better um with regards to the accommodation flows uh, either be it for let's say ethnic problems or uh, ethnic conflict or for climate change well, in my opinion, the first thing is that any policy that is being made on refugees need to underscore, and with regard to South Asia, it becomes all the more important. Uh, it needs to underscore that refugees have a right to have rights. Okay, so that's, I think, is the, the preeminent uh, first prerequisite of any policy making for refugees is that uh, they need, they have a right to have rights in the first place. Okay, so first, I mean, if you look at uh, one of the things that needs to be done, no matter how flawed the international instruments of refugees are, no matter how flawed the uh, compacts are, unless and until we sign those compacts, there is no institutional guarantee uh, to the lives of refugees. So that no matter how flawed they are, they need to be signed. Uh, if you are looking for a standardized treatment of refugees from a policy perspective, of course, there's no guarantee that signing an accord or the signing of a convention gives you the standardization of treating the refugees in a certain way but it still gives them a legal hold as to somewhere they stand in, in the future of, of a nation so that's the first thing that you sign the existing international agreements of course we are talking about an entirely normative situation here so the first thing is that we, we look at these international instruments of refugees and treating refugees that gives them the least legal guarantee that at absolutely the bottom level. The second thing is that those uh, instruments uh, which are international and which are also very symbolic at some point of time, uh, they also need to be calibrated with regional and national laws. Okay, so unless and until you make it fitting according to the regional and national laws, it's not something that is going to have any effect. So, I mean, if you ask anybody from a theoretical perspective, if you look at the why is it that this part of the world does not have a lot of traction for refugee convention, is because they would say that they were not a part of the making of the refugee convention in the first place. Okay, so the refugee conventions or the compacts of, of refugees have always been a very Western perspective and the non-West has not taken and participated their share of how refugee conventions are to be created. So it's a very... Uh, I mean, it's again a post-colonial argument of sorts that we were not part of the making of these conventions. So these conventions are alien to us. These conventions are external to us. But having said that, like I said, no matter how flawed they are, they give a certain low equilibrium, even if it's low equilibrium, a low threshold of legal guarantee. 
they have to be corroborated and they have to be made ancillary with the regional and national domestic laws. So it's a three-level game, international, regional, national. If, unless and until you have this three-level game operational, there's very less to say about how much of a legal guarantee do the refugees have. The refugees will not have legal guarantees in terms of that. So one part of that is 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 a very important element of how refugees can be treated. So that leads to the policy implications. For example, uh, you have rights of movement, you have rights of better housing. Once you acknowledge that they have rights and they have a right to have rights, the automatic implications follow as to uh, whether um, you're talking about economic rights, social rights, political rights, and so on and so forth. It automatically follows up to that. The one part of any law is therefore the codification of the law. That, that's one part of the story. The laws only become functional when they have legitimacy, when they have social and political legitimacy. So uh, writing on a piece of paper, codifying it, instrumentally passing it down is one side of the story. Second is that how is it that the political culture imbibes that law? Okay, so one part of the normativity exists in the lawmaking, the other part is putting into practice. So how is it that we internalize laws? Unless and until uh, a nature of liberal politics gains hold in South Asia, that looks very impossible in South Asia at present. So they, they might provide legal guarantees to people, but that necessarily might not turn into social capital of refugees, might not turn into social guarantees of refugees, and also might not turn refugees into socially acceptable categories uh, in, in our societies. Until and unless the rules of the game, the broader rules of the game in South Asia change from a very strong communitarian hold to a much more liberal inclusive politics, uh, it seems difficult. So one part of the suggestions, policy suggestions would of course be the three-level game, international, regional and national. And the other part is not so policy, but in terms of how this policy is acceptable, how this policy becomes normalized, legitimized. And how refugees become a humane category, how refugees become a category which is uh, much more socially humane is something that no law can determine unless and until the society itself stands up for it. So that's it. That's kind of pretty much I have in mind. I think that's a perfect place for us to close. Um, then thank you so much for all your valuable insights on the issue. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in into another episode of The Policy Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Policy Room, produced by the Social and Political Research Foundation. SPRF is a youth-oriented, public policy think tank based in New Delhi, working to spark dialogues for a better democracy. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.